welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We are a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. And this is our 10th episode. All right. All right. So for our 10th episode, I went a little bit wild (laughs) and did so much research that we are going to actually have to split our 10th episode into two episodes. Wow. This is going to be a research extravaganza. It's going to be an extravaganza, all right. An extravaganza. I'm covering somebody who everybody has at least heard of, but might not know that much about apart from the broad strokes. What can you tell me about John Dillinger? John Dillinger. um, Criminal. Mm -hmm. Bank robber. Yes. Not a whole lot other than that. Nailed it. All right, we're done here. All right. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> All right. uh, okay. Uh, before I get into it, I want to say that my main source was a book I'm very fond of, The Dillinger Days by John Toland. Um, then for just like a couple of supplementary things, I used Public Enemies by Brian Burrow, as well as PBS's American Experience site for some supplemental stuff um are you ready i am so ready you are not ready i'm not ready i am going to rock your world okay all right um i'm not going to spend a ton of time on dillinger's childhood because there's so much wild stuff to tell you about his adult life but there's one particular story that shows with perfect clarity the sort of man he would become Mm. Uh, when dillinger was around nine years old he formed his very first gang who were called the Dirty Dozen. This was a little neighborhood uh, gang of children. Um, For a while, they were only a gang in the sense that, like, the little rascals are a gang. Hmm. But by the time he was in sixth grade, so about two or three years later, he started leading actual raids against the Pennsylvania Railroad. I'm sorry, raids? Yes, Raids against so and to clarify, he at that time lived in Indianapolis, so Pennsylvania Railroad was just the name of the the company. Uh, so needless to say, his childhood hero was Jesse James, famous train robber. Um, so when I say they were going on raids, I mean they were stealing coal off of the train cars and then selling it to their neighbors and pocketing the cash. Wow. Yeah. So not too bad for being like 11, 12 years old. That's not that's not too bad. Um, so for some unfathomable reason, a group of adult women, so grown, grown ass women, um, approached them at one point and asked if the Dirty Dozen would give them a discount on the coal if they helped the gang haul it from the tracks. So this child gang and a couple of fully grown adults were loading up a cart and one of the lookout kids sees a railroad detective coming. He whistles and the boys know that that's the signal to take off. The women don't know shit. Like they have no idea. Like this kid's just whistling and now the kids are taking off. Um, so believe it or not, these fine upstanding ladies turn the boys into the cops. Oh. Um, I know it's who could have known. Um, they all ended up in court together. The other kids were scared like half to death, basically, uh, but not Dillinger. Again, 11, 12 years old. Uh, Dillinger sat there with a slouch cap pulled down over his foreheads like you could hardly see his his little baby eyes. And he had this huge wad of gum in his cheek. And he's just like a cow with cud, just going to town on this gum. <laughs> um, just staring down the judge, not a care in the world. Little Billy badass here. 
Um, the judge tells him to get rid of the hat and the gum. So he takes the gum out of his mouth, sticks it on the brim of his hat, and then just stares at the judge like, all right, that's as much as you're getting out of me. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fast forward a few years to 1924 when Dillinger was 21. He and a couple of his buddies were arrested for stealing 41 chickens from a neighbor. Um, <laughs> his dad, John Sr., was able to get the case more or less thrown out, even though the victim wanted to press charges. This is an inconsequential detail, but I just love the inherent zaniness of stealing 41 chickens. That's pretty so, amazing. Yeah. And just like three, like 21 year old guys, just 41 chickens. Like I can't imagine like the scene. Like, how are you, <laughs> like, how are you wrangling these 41 chickens? Like, is there I, I a just, lot of feathers? I guess. Yeah. I imagine like, it seems very much like I'm picturing it. Like I can only see the Muppets reenacting this like no person is doing this right like camilla and gonzo are involved for sure uh so that summer he started playing baseball in mooresville indiana and made friends with a guy named ed singleton singleton was not necessarily a good influence uh the two of them found out that the owner of a local grocery store did the bank drops by himself on saturday evenings on his way to get a haircut B.F. Morgan, the owner, was an older guy who was very into his routines. What's interesting about Morgan as a target is that Dillinger was caught stealing pennies from him when he was a kid, and Morgan gave him a stern lecture on honesty instead of getting him into any real trouble. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure Dillinger and Singleton, like, this guy to them looks like an easy mark. He's an older guy who does his weekly bank drops by himself at the same time on the same day he's been shown to not be particularly litigious when theft is concerned like easy mark so <laughs> on september 26th dillinger waited at a nearby church and jumped morgan on his way to the bank hitting him on the head with a bolt he'd put in a sock unfortunately morgan was wearing a straw hat that did a lot to cushion the blow but dillinger hit him a second time and he dropped to the ground Oh, my. Yeah, a bolt in his sock. But, you know, he's got his, his jaunty little straw hat. He was fine. So Mr. Morgan was a Freemason. So he does the Mason's call for help. They have, I guess, a specific cry that means, hey, other Masons, I'm in trouble. Come help me. Okay. Which I find, like, why would you need that necessarily? But okay. All right. That's fine. Um, in from, a situation like this. Well, yeah. I feel like if some hoodlum runs out of a church with a bolt in a sock, like, hey, guys. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot yeah um from dillinger's perspective it seemed like a bunch of people came out of nowhere so in his panic he pulls out a gun and manages to fire it okay without necessarily meaning to um he thought he shot mr morgan and that the mob is like forming around him so he took off without getting anything from mr morgan nothing whatsoever and booked it around the corner to where singleton was supposed to be waiting in the getaway car oh singleton was long gone oh oh, oh dear. yeah dillinger was arrested a couple days later and taken to jail in martinsville indiana the county judge promised a light sentence if he pleaded guilty but he would not do it so they took that deal off the table that all fell apart a few days later when John Sr. came to visit him and he broke down, Dillinger did, and confessed the entire thing to the prosecutor. Now, this prosecutor was a dirty son of a bitch. Uh, he hears this full confession and tells John Sr., don't bother hiring a lawyer. 
Don't even worry about it. It quote unquote won't be necessary. And so, of course, when Dillinger goes to trial without a lawyer and is found guilty as hell, they throw the book at him 10 to 20 years at Pendleton Reformatory. Yeah. And again, he's 21 years old. So for all intents and purposes, like this is your life. And especially back at that time, like people were mature much more quickly than they are now. So for him to be like coming out into the world somewhere between 31 and 41 years old, like you're you're done. Like that's your life, you know. Right. As you can imagine, this was not exactly a fun vacation. Dillinger started trying to escape pretty much right away, but this was definitely a skill he had to hone over time. His first try was on October 10th of that year, so just a couple of weeks later, uh, but he was found hiding in the metal shop. A few days later, he escaped custody on the way to testify against Ed Singleton, but was soon recaptured. In November, he smuggled in a saw and escaped into the corridor with a few other guys, but they didn't even make it out of the cell block. Every time this happened, they added six more months to his sentence. Oh, man. Uh After a while, he decided to cool it and started making friends. Unfortunately, if you hate crime, but fortunately, if you love this kind of thing, uh, he thought it would be fine and normal to make friends with the career criminals. His two besties were bank robber Harry Pierpont and car thief Homer Van Meter. These are names you'll be hearing a lot. So Pierpont and Van Meter. Okay. Both of them had uh, past experience with jailbreaking, but obviously hadn't yet been more successful than Dillinger, given they met in prison. No sooner had he bonded with these two gentlemen before they both got transferred to Indiana State Prison in Michigan City. So as soon as he makes friends, friends are gone. Um, I should mention that Pierpont and Van Meter hated each other, hated each other. Uh, So it was sheer coincidence that they both got shipped off to the same place in in such a short amount of time. Like, I'm sure neither of them was very happy about that either. Yeah, fate intervened. (laughs) Yeah, they just, they were destined to be together. Mm. Um, It was probably because of that that Dillinger took it personally and started acting a fool. I think he was basically doing any stupid thing he could think to do to get himself transferred to Michigan City to be with them. Because Michigan City, like you're being transferred to a state prison, which is not an upgrade. Not at all. So if you start acting like a complete beast, they're probably going to send you to the worst place, right? Sure. Um, so when I say he's doing stupid stuff, I mean like getting on the guard's nerves by braying like a donkey in the middle of the night and refusing to stop. just just shenanigans um he did end up giving up pretty quickly when it wasn't working and went back into model prisoner mode for a while it's like well if i can't piss them off enough like i gotta find a different way to get what i want his first opportunity for parole came up after he'd been incarcerated for about five years um he was sure he'd be let go because again after the first like you know six months a year he was trying to keep his nose clean you know the day before the hearing he played shortstop at a game with a local baseball team the governor and a reporter for the state house news were in attendance to watch him play that's the only reason they were there is just to watch dillinger play baseball Mm -hmm. Uh, he was the sort of guy who was amazing during practice but usually biffed it during actual games but he played like a pro that day The governor, who was also a member of the parole board, leaned over to the reporter at one point during the game and said, that kid ought to be playing Major League Ball. I say it like that because it was 1929. So everybody, 
Everybody oh, talked that way. Of course. Right. Yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, Dillinger was not as impressive in front of the parole board as he was on the ball field because they took a look at his record and said, absolutely not. Oh. Oh. So he asked if, as a compromise, they would transfer him to Michigan City to serve the rest of his sentence, pointing out that they had their very own baseball team there. Uh, because of his performance the day before, they okayed it and shipped him off to Michigan City. That is incredible. I, on July 15th, he was reunited with Pierpont and Van Meter so he could play baseball. That seems so un- unusual. Yes. Yes, it does. Is it? I wonder if that was more common or was it bizarre or unusual for the time? It's my understanding that it, I mean, it wasn't unheard of, but it wasn't common because, I mean, for example, and now here's what I don't understand and I couldn't find an explanation for. This man is a prisoner in this penitentiary. But they let him out for the day to play baseball on a local team. Right. What? I. Right? So yeah. that's. Mm, okay. And, and not to mention this man who has had like a year and a half to two years added to his sentence for escape attempts. But sure. Let's let him go play shortstop with the local ball team. Sure, it's fine. It was a different time. It was it was certainly a different time. And I feel like a lot of the ways in which now is different from then, changes were made because of John Herbert Dillinger. Mm. Okay. 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 Um, so during their separation, Pierpont had managed to make the necessary connections and impress the right people to become head of a ring of professional bank robbers which was eventually advantageous for his pal Dillinger. In 1932, so three more years in prison, Pierpont began planning a prison break with three other inmates, uh, Red Hamilton, Charles Makeley, and Russell Clark. And these are also guys that we will hear more about in the future. They kind of stick around a bit. Uh, The problem was with finding someone reliable on the outside who could help facilitate things. So Pierpont approached Dillinger, who was almost at the end of his sentence by this time. He's almost done the full 10. That was the lighter sentence since he hasn't really been that bad of a guy. You know, he'll probably get out in 10. Um, So Pierpont offered Dillinger a spot on the bank robbing team. In order to make their escape doable, they would need a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So Pierpont gave Dillinger a list of banks and stores that would be easy to rob and some decent accomplices to help with this obviously small matter of financing. This was a dream come true for Dillinger because to him, this was a way of life that would guarantee him the sort of freedom and luxury he'd always wanted. This was all the motivation he needed to really put in the work and keep his nose clean so that his parole was sure to be granted the next time he was eligible. He was joined in this pursuit by Homer Van Meter, who would also soon be up for parole and wanted in on the scheme. While they waited, their free time was spent learning the lamb method of bank robbery. This is a very Ocean's Eleven type situation. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so they would spend weeks. And now this is not just these guys who were in prison. This was named after a guy. So lamb is a guy who was prolific bank robber who came up with this whole method of doing things and it became very popular with the other bank robbers who were active at the time so weeks would be spent casing the bank 
until someone in the gang was able to draw the floor plan out in meticulous detail. Then the bank would be recreated in an abandoned warehouse or somewhere similar so that the entire crew could rehearse their roles over and over and over until they got it right. Wow. Yeah. Meanwhile, the getaway driver would not only practice several different escape routes, he would practice those routes at different times of day and different types of weather. They had the stuff down to the second. So this was this was the this was a a very big difference from robbers who run into a to a bank and just say give me all your money and then they make their best escape they can versus mm-hmm. the professionals who have it planned in in their sleep they they can right. they, they can do it with a blindfold on right a huge difference um so may 22nd 1933 dillinger was released from prison after serving 9 years of his sentence it's worth noting that he went in at the height of the Roaring Twenties and came out in the middle of the Great Depression. Okay. So the list Pierpont gave him of banks and stores was nearly useless. Wow. Yeah. Um, this was a totally different world. So in 1933, over 13 million Americans were jobless and the average household income had decreased by about 50% since the start of the Depression four years before in 1929. It's bleak. Hundreds of banks across the country had failed over those four years. And at the same time, instances of bank robbing had skyrocketed. Uh, Some of that was fueled by the desperation, of course, but a large portion of these bank robbers were criminals who had worked as rum runners all through prohibition. President Roosevelt had announced that he was going to end prohibition. So all of these rum runners and bootleggers were about to be out of a job, just like all these other millions of Americans. Other heavy hitters operating at the time as Dillinger included Al Capone, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow, Pretty Boy Floyd, Machine Gun Kelly, the real one, Ma Barker and her boys, Bugs Moran, and Frank Nash. Because of the time, because most everyone in the country was struggling in an unprecedented way, all of these people became more than just household names. They were beloved folk heroes in the same vein as Robin Hood. This was more true of John Dillinger than any of the others. But he didn't get off to a great start. Hmm. I'd go so far as to say it was a start that would work well with Yakety Sacks as the soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So on June 10th, so this man has been out of prison for less than three weeks. Dillinger teamed up with Lefty Parker, William Shaw, and Noble Claycomb to rob his very first bank. Aww was the first national bank of New Carlisle, Ohio. While Claycomb waited in the getaway car, Shaw, Dillinger, and Parker got into the bank by crawling through a bathroom window that was usually left open night and day. Okay. Smart move. Yeah. Um, So the three of them waited in the teller's cage until the bookkeeper, Horace Grisso, came in to open up the bank that morning. Dillinger pointed a gun at Grisso and told him to open up the safe. While Grisso was fumbling to get the safe open, presumably because he was shitting himself, other employees started to come in to start the day. Each of them were tied up and forced to lie on the floor behind the cage so they wouldn't be visible from the street. This part of the caper went really smoothly, and they walked out with $10,600, which amounts to a little over $234,000 in 2022. Not bad. Not bad for a first try. 
Because things went so well, Dillinger headed back to Indianapolis and, hey, why not, convinced Shaw to commit two more robberies that day with Parker as the getaway driver. I don't know what Claycomb did to get kicked out of the group, but what I really don't get is why he made Parker the getaway driver when he had never getaway driven before. <laughs> hmm. This is when you cue yakety sacks. Okay. Parker double parked in front of a drugstore while Dillinger and Shaw headed inside with their guns drawn and went for the cash registers. The store was full of people who stopped what they were doing to watch the robbery. Back at the soda fountain register, Dillinger pointed his gun at the employees and customers nearby and told them to look away. Where else do they look but towards Shaw at the main register? Oh, no. Shaw yells at them to stop looking at him. So they all turn back to look at Dillinger, who tells them they need to look away. So they just keep going back and forth like they're watching a tennis match. <laughs> and these guys are getting so pissed off and everybody's just like, huh? 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 Uh, <laughs> In the meantime, Parker was able to repark the car flush against the curb. But he managed to wedge it so tightly between two other cars that he couldn't get it out again. Oh, it was the scene from Austin Powers where he's backing up and pulling forward just a, <laughs> over and over until they could finally drive away. Uh-huh. And despite <laughs> how absolutely stupidly this robbery unfolded, they decided to continue on to a third one at a supermarket. Sure. Why not, right? This is like we're having a great time. It's fine. Even if everything else had gone well so far, there was a particular issue with this supermarket. Shaw told Dillinger, "Hey man, I have definitely never robbed this supermarket before." When in fact, he robbed it so recently that the manager recognized him the second he walked in. Oh, yeah. He very calmly informed Shaw that thanks to the robbery he committed there just a few days ago, their corporate office had started collecting the money daily and had already completed the pickup for that day. There was no money left in store. Dillinger was understandably pissed off about this and walked out, but Shaw took the time to grab a bunch of 10 cigarette boxes on the way out just so they would have something to show for it. After how poorly things had gone at the drugstore, Parker was determined not to mess up this time. So as soon as Dillinger was in the car, he took off down the street. This, of course, left Shaw standing on the sidewalk with an armload of cigarette tins. Oh, <laughs> uh-huh. poor guy. Yep. <laughs> They made it an entire block away before Dillinger got Parker to turn around to pick up Shaw. <laughs> just, <laughs> just nonsense. Needless to say, Dillinger was not impressed and decided to leave Parker off the roster going forward. Hmm. But that didn't make the next job go much more smoothly. His next robbery was of Marshall Fields Threadmill in Monticello, still Indianapolis. Uh, Indiana, excuse me, on June 24th. So this was two days after Dillinger's birthday. This doesn't sound like a natural target, but the company was said to have a large payroll and the following day was payday. It was pretty normal back then for employees to be paid in cash, especially because, you know, banks are going under left and right. People aren't really going to want to take a check. Um, so this had the potential to be a huge get for them. They parked where they could see the mill entrance and waited for the assistant manager, Fred Fisher, to walk to the bank to pick up payroll. They were going to snatch it as he walked back to the mill. Because, again, just like Mr. Morgan before, he does this same time, same day of the week, by himself, like clockwork. 
When he finally emerged, however, he turned the opposite way and headed home before going to the bank, deciding to get in his car and drive to the bank instead of walking. And why did he do this, you might ask? Well, neither Dillinger nor Shaw had learned the art of subtlety yet (laughs) and had been so conspicuous in staking out the place that Fred Fisher's wife had noticed them and called her husband to tell him, like, hey, watch out. There's these two weird guys staring at you like watching everything going on at the mill it's weird that's not what you want it's really kind of the opposite of what you want yeah uh no matter they headed back to the mill and formed a new plan while they waited for him dillinger would go into the mill and pretend to apply for a job then shaw would wait for the signal so dillinger headed in saw that fisher had returned because there were two administrators counting out the money and putting it in envelopes Instead of doing anything that didn't seem weird, he left without speaking to anyone and told Shaw to go in instead. Hmm. Yeah. Shaw was told to knock on the office door, pull out his gun when one of the women answered. Then to signal Dillinger, he was to slam the door behind him. But when Shaw knocked on the door, nothing happened. A stenographer opened a different door about 25 yards away. So he walked up to her and asked to speak to the manager. Then, as he had been instructed, he pulled the gun on her and slammed the door shut. The problem was this door was not visible from the outside and was, in fact, so far from the parking lot that Dillinger didn't even hear it slam. Oh, my goodness. Uh Uh-huh. So while Dillinger was out in the car twiddling his thumbs, Fred Fisher managed to get the gun away from Shaw. Shaw beat it out of there and went sprinting back to the car telling Dillinger they need to get the hell out of there. And a good thing, too, because Fred Fisher chased him into the parking lot, waving his own gun at him. Wow. <laughs> so it is incredible that anybody has ever heard the name John Dillinger, like successful criminal bank robber, because what is this? This is amateur hour. This is amateur hour. To be fair, he was an amateur. Mm. But what? Here's the realizing on the cake of that story. They didn't even plan an escape route ahead of time. So they ended up getting severely lost trying to make their way home. <laughs> but they didn't want to end the day on this terrible note. And for some reason, they haven't like they didn't notice last time. Hey, when we keep doing this, like it doesn't get better. Um, so on the way home, they decided to stop and rob an open air fruit market. Shaw got spooked, though, when he saw one of his neighbors, like a kid who lived across the street from him. So they grabbed the money from one of the registers and took off with 175 bucks for the whole day. Wow. After all of this planning, $175. That evening, Dillinger quipped, you didn't even make expenses today. You got to pay for a 45. That's a good one. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> funny guy. I, I would assume that the fruit caper would have been more <laughs> successful than that. But. You, you would think you could steal enough money from an open air fruit market to buy a brand new gun, but apparently not. Not even during the Great Depression. Oh, man. I know. It's a bummer. Well, and you got to split the 175 evenly. So. Oh, yeah. Know. So it's, it's a wash. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, totally pointless. And then all the gas you had to pay for because you're lost as hell driving around. Hmm. Yeah. Bummer. In the next three weeks, ditching Shaw and working with other established gangs, including that of the recently paroled Homer Van Meter, Dillinger managed to successfully rob 10 different banks across five different states in three weeks. Okay. After this bumbling finish, he was finally like, wait, why am I working with this actual clown car? 
I'm going to get with my buddy Van Meter and like actually get my life together. Okay, gotcha. So now now we're going. We're off. We're we're John Dillinger now. We're Robin Banks. This is it. This is it. 10 banks, five different states in 3 weeks hmm. with no problem. Okay. All right. So in mid-July, he joined back up with Shaw, the aforementioned clown car, and Claycomb, who was also with them on the first successful robbery, and a couple of other guys to rob the bank in Daleville, also Indiana. Uh, The night before (laughs) Shaw, God bless him, an idiot. The night before the planned robbery, they decided to rob a bar just for the hell of it. They were recognized. Hmm. Uh, So after breakfast, the morning of the proposed bank robbery, Dillinger goes out to move the car off the curb. He's going to park it in the garage and back. So he gets in the car, pulls around the curb. When he starts to turn into the back garage, he sees Shaw and Claycom with their hands up and police pointing guns at them. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Dillinger's in his car. Throws it in reverse. Full speed out of there. Gets away. Sure. Nobody chases him. Nothing happens to him. Scot free. Fortunately, that takes Shaw out of the picture because the man's an idiot. So he's he, so he's is he gone? Shaw and Claycomb are off the board. Never seen again in this story. I mean, I'm sure they were seen again in life. Sure, but for yeah, done, done. And thank God because Shaw is a menace. The man's an idiot. Wow. Yeah. So Dillinger, he's just like mm, I don't know because the bank in Daleville looked really good to me. Um, returned on July 17th and with two other men commenced with the plan to rob the commercial bank. Uh, when they go in, the teller is the only person there because they arrived during lunchtime. So there's only one person who's not on break. This is when I just got chills. I'm so excited. This is the first iconic Dillinger moment. With one hand on the gate, he launched himself over the barrier. When Johnny Depp recreated this moment in Public Enemies, I actually screamed. Like, in the theater, I was like, oh, it was so perfect. And, like, I've got, like, full body chills right now. Like, just that <laughs> image of him, just a little hat on his head, leaping over the gate, just not a care in the world. It's such a badass thing to do. And he nailed it. He didn't practice this. It was just came over him to do it. And he did it. And he nailed it. That move was what put Dillinger on the national stage. That was what captured people's interests and imaginations. It was in the local papers. It spread like wildfire. It was everywhere. Everybody was talking about this guy. They were calling him Dan Dillinger. Didn't know the guy's real name at that point, but just everywhere. Instant celebrity. It's so cool. It's just like, you know, maybe being a criminal is not the move. But that is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) But that's really, I mean, that's the big takeaway from that particular robbery. And then from there, he committed two more pretty uneventful robberies. But every time he's doing the leap over the gate. Oh, that became his thing. That's, yeah, that's his signature. Like, that's what makes him the wet bandits. They always know it's him because he's doing the same thing every time, right? Um, So these two, this was the First National Bank in Montpelier, Indiana, and the Citizens National Bank in Bluffton, Ohio, for a combined total of $12,100. On September 6th, Dillinger and two accomplices robbed the State Bank of Massachusetts Avenue in Indianapolis of $24,800. Equivalent to over half a million dollars today. 
That's a lot. And that is a lot. Uh, this was, at least at that time, the second most successful bank robbery in the entire state of Indiana. Wow. Yeah, not too bad. Because um, like September, so he's only been at this for like, what, four or five months at the most. Mm-hmm. That is not bad. Um, so he now had plenty of money for Pierpont's escape plan. If we remember that that's why we're robbing all these banks is to break his buddies out of prison. Yeah. Right. So Dillinger's only job was to smuggle guns into the prison. Less than a week after the state bank robbery, he threw three guns over the prison wall and onto the athletic field so that the gang on the inside could pick them up on their way to work the following morning. The good news is that the guards didn't notice the guns. The bad news is that some other inmate found them and turned them over to the deputy warden. Oh. Oh. After all of that, we got to get more money for more guns. Uh, Pierpont came up with a plan B pretty quickly. He was a smart guy, like a very calculating career criminal. So his plan was to hide the guns in a box of supplies being sent to the prison. Dillinger bought four more guns and had one of his associates make sure they made it into a box of thread marked for the shirt factory where Pierpont worked. While he waited to be reunited with his buddies, he went to visit his girlfriend, Mary, in Dayton. Unbeknownst to both of them, two detectives had made the acquaintance of Mary's landlady, and she called them the moment she saw Dillinger. Not good. At 1.30 in the morning on September 22nd, the detectives knocked on Mary's door with their guns at the ready. But the guns weren't necessary. Dillinger was terrified of death and went without a fight. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now Pierpont and the rest of his buddies are out of prison. They successfully broke out with the guns, but Dillinger was on his way back in. Oh, man. Oh, bummer. But Pierpont owes him one. Yeah. So you just got to kind of wait it out. He cooled his heels in the Allen County Jail in Lima, Ohio, while the gang committed the robberies necessary to get the money to break Dillinger out. He didn't have to wait long. On the evening of October 12th, Pierpont, Clark, Makeley, Hamilton, Ed Schaus, and Harry Copeland surrounded the jail armed with pistols. It's worth noting that this was a pretty small jail and not uncommon for the time in smaller towns where it was actually connected to the residence of the sheriff, Jeff Sarber. Really? Yeah. So this was, I mean, and it happens like a couple, like another jail that comes into play later. Like you look at the pictures of it and it looks like a house, but the sheriff lived kind of the prisoners were like down a short hallway from him. Like there's just a short little hallway that connects his home where he lives with his wife, Lucy to the prison where the prisoners are. Interesting. Very, very normal for the time. Apparently in these smaller towns, at least. So Pierpont told Sheriff Sarber that he and the other men were policemen from Michigan city who wanted to talk to Dillinger. When the sheriff asked to see their credentials, their guns came out. (laughs) Of course. Here's my credentials. Sheriff Sarber was fatally shot twice when he tried to pull out his own gun. Uh, Dillinger hopped over a table like it was a bank counter, grabbed his coat and his hat, and followed the gang through the front door. Just strolled right out. We're done. The Indiana town of Greencastle celebrated homecoming the weekend of October 21st, so nine days later. Local merchants made tons of money from it. Like, tons. This is like their big festival in Greencastle. Everybody's out here selling stuff, even though it's the depression. You know, this is like a nice escapist thing we can do to kind of, you know, get away from it all. So with that in mind, the reformed Dillinger gang headed to rob the Central National Bank the following Monday and walked away with approximately $75,000. Oh. Yeah. 
in like 1932 money. That's not bad. That's a lot. That is a lot. Uh, the gang then moved to Chicago, where they managed to avoid suspicion by assuming normal lives. They went to movies, ball games, restaurants, you name it. It was around this time that Captain Matthew Leach of the Indiana State Police coordinated with a local private investigator to plant a stool pigeon in Chicago, a man named Art, who had befriended Dillinger in prison. Simultaneously, the Chicago Scotland Yard Division sent out their own informant, Whitey. Whitey told the police Dillinger had a doctor's appointment coming up on November 15th, and Art confirmed the appointment with Captain Leach. Both law enforcement agencies sent men to kill Dillinger as he emerged from his appointment. Dillinger's new girlfriend, Billy Frechette, rode with him to the appointment and waited in the car while he went inside. As the appointment proceeded, several police cars began to line the street outside the office. The second Dillinger came outside and noticed that there were multiple cars parked ahead of his, all facing the wrong direction, he knew exactly what was going on. He knew enough to play it cool, though. He got into the driver's seat of the car like this is just a totally normal evening. Then, after calmly telling Billy to hang on, he threw the car in reverse and floored it backward into oncoming traffic. Wow. Whoa. Yep. Only one of the policemen reacted quickly enough to follow him. This became a scene out of a movie. <laughs> like, I'm reasonably sure John Dillinger was at least a partial inspiration for every crazy car chase that has ever been put on film. So with Billy ducking down in the floorboards, Dillinger pulls out a shotgun and starts blasting as they fly down the road at top speed. The policeman in the passenger seat of the chase car pulled out his own shotgun and started firing back. And they're going through traffic. Like there are people all around and these are shotguns. A shotgun is not a precision instrument. By not, really. <laughs> not by any means of the imagination. So, um, so they're having a shootout. A shootout. On the interstate? Well, uh, well I, I not, guess there was an interstate at the time. Right. But just down the main street, like going through traffic, a shootout. This went on for like miles. Wow. And they're just blasting at each other like crazy. And again, when the the policeman, it's the, the passenger, the guy riding shotgun, haha, is the one who's firing. Dillinger is driving and firing billy is like ducked down in the floorboard and again just like in a movie there just so happened to be coming up ahead trolley tracks and there's two trolleys coming from opposite directions right they're speeding towards these trolleys trolleys are coming oh no oh yeah so the cops are like they're sure we've got him he's trapped oh no he shoots across the tracks just barely misses getting hit and they have to stop for the trolleys He's gone. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. That is. Yeah, that, that's like out of a movie. It's so cinematic. And that's why I feel like like this actually happened. It's documented. The shootout, the chase, the trolleys, all of this is real. And then all of these movies ever since then have just been copying like the Dillinger model of car chase scenes because that is insane. That's great. It's great. He's great. Like, you can see why I'm so, like, I mean, don't do crimes, kids. But, like, he is an icon. I love this man. And it is only going to get more wild from here. That being said, (laughs) that is where I'm going to leave you for part one of John Dillinger. Oh, man. Okay. All right. So, all right, guys. Thanks for listening and giving us a little bit of your time today. Hopefully you found the first half of that story interesting. If you did, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. If you'd like to check out some pictures related to the story, they'll be on our Instagram and Twitter accounts. We are Fantastic H Pod on both. 
You can also drop us a line at fantastichistorypod at gmail.com. See you next week. Bye. Bye.